Well, good morning, church family. It is a great blessing for me to be able to stand here and see all of you in person after all this time. I feel it weighing very heavy on me that I'm the one who has been entrusted to bring the message after all this time apart and we're finally back together. It's almost surreal. But as I was just thinking about our time apart, I know for me it felt like I was a flower in a desert, in an arid place. I mean, we have our personal devotion, our Bible study time, our own personal worship and prayer, but there's something very special about being together in person as the saints, worshiping God together, serving together, hearing the word of God together. And my prayer is that we would never forget what it's like to have to be apart and that we would never again take for granted our gathering together. I think about when Hebrews says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. We sometimes see that as some kind of religious command where God demands us to be together. But in truth, it's for our own good. It's for our own building up. It isn't the ultimate blessing that we share life together. And, and that is really what it is to be a Christian. No man is an island. We, we serve together, live together, love together, worship together. We will spend eternity with each other and worship the Lord eternally together. So my prayer is that we would never forget the great blessing that we have. Well, if it wasn't crazy enough that we have this virus that's ravaging the world right now, loss of life, people being terrified to go out without a mask on, as if all this isn't crazy enough that it's pulling the church into a place that we've never experienced, causing us to do things completely different, the world right now is in an uproar. The world is in an uproar because of an injustice that's been recognized. But I think what we need to look at is the response to that injustice. Yes, we recognize that there was a great injustice in this loss of a life. That it shouldn't have happened. That's true. But look at the response to this injustice. Look at what's going on out on the streets. While we're angry about the loss of an innocent life, while we're frustrated about this injustice, many people are countering this injustice with injustice and calling it justice. They're going about on the streets, looting, protesting in violence, rioting. Now, I will admit there are peaceful protests, but it's the contrary that's turning the world in an uproar. When you turn on the news and you see everything that's coming upon the United States and now it's global, we see the wickedness of man. And how in both cases it's a great evil. And that that evil lies in the heart of man. Evil in the heart of man is what causes one man to kill another. Evil in the heart of man is what causes those who see that to be an injustice to go and wound those around them, rob them of their livelihoods, put their lives, lives at risk, and seek the harm of the officers that had nothing to do with the incident. Both are a grave evil and a great injustice. And the issue lies in the very heart of humanity. That's what the problem is. When we turn on the news and when we see all that's going on, it is the heart of man. The wicked, desperately evil, quick to run to, evil heart of man. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart of a man is a depraved thing. And man will look for any and every reason to unleash the depths of hell in his actions outside of Christ. 
And we're going to read the text today. We will be in Ephesians chapter 3, looking at verse 14 through 21. And we're going to see that it is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus that there is a transformed heart. A heart in which is fit for Christ the King to dwell in. The entire prayer in this passage hinges on verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Let's read the text together. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin this morning. Father, for this reason I bow my knees before you, O God, among whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, as a church, would be rooted and grounded in love, and may have strength to comprehend with all the other saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to you, Lord, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to you, Father, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Lord, as I stand here this morning, I pray you would give me the words to speak and to speak clearly. I pray that I wouldn't go beyond what you would have and I wouldn't fall short of what you have, but that our eyes would be open through this message as to what is necessary in our journey to the city that you have called us to. What is necessary to be a true Christian and what is necessary to have a transformed heart. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I just want to look at the opening verse. Verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. You know, oftentimes when we pray, it's not always the same. Sometimes we're praying when we're driving in the car. Sometimes we pray before a meal. Prayer doesn't always look the same. There are sometimes, however, when we fall to our knees in our private quarters and we begin to pray to the Father. On behalf of a specific individual or because of a certain need, we pray with fervency. And this is where the Apostle Paul is now, even more so. Up to this point, he has been ministering faithfully to the church of Ephesus. He's been guiding them, shepherding them, speaking into their lives. He has led them doctrinally. He has showed them that he is an apostle sent to them on their behalf. He spoke to them about God's blessings in Christ Jesus, spiritual adoption as sons, salvation by grace alone, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and probably the best news that they could get, that you Gentiles are included in this, that it has been extended to you and not only the Jews. But he understood that he couldn't leave them there. He understood that he couldn't leave them in a place with head knowledge. Or even just hope. He prays for them a prayer that would guide their hearts to the truth and express to them what must take place to be partakers of the Christian faith. They must have the heart of Christ. They must have a heart in which Christ dwells in. 
So here the Apostle Paul is on his knees, praying fervently, travailing in prayer on behalf of these saints that he has ministered to with his life. He knows that he will be putting off his flesh soon. He's getting the final things in order. And he says he's on his knees before the Father. He's bowing before the Father in humble submission, adoration, and reverence. And notice in verse 15, the language. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's saying, I'm praying to the sovereign. I'm praying to the one who names the name of those who are his. Who names the name of the saints. Who has elected the saints from all generations, all eras, all places of all times. Those in heaven and those on earth. I petition the sovereign, mighty, powerful God on behalf of you Ephesians that God might grant you to be strengthened in your inner being by his spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts so that you may have the ability and the faculty to love. I'm on my knees before the Father, the sovereign Lord, praying that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. There's a few things that I want us to look at. There's an order here. First is that he prays to the sovereign God that God may grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being. This is an initial inner working that begins to take place inside of an individual when God begins to call them to himself. Next, what happens is when somebody fully submits to that calling with their entire being and their entire life, their heart is fit for the king to come in and live and dwell. Once that takes place and our heart is one with Christ and Christ truly dwells in our heart, we then love and are able to fulfill the two commandments that Jesus Christ gave and said we're the greatest. To love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And to love our neighbor as ourself. So here Paul is, he's, he's praying and really hoping that they don't get hung up on just that first part. God, I'm praying that through your power, through your spirit, you would work in the inner man. Work in these people. The inner man is the conscience, the, the heart, the mind of an individual. Paul is recognizing that something first needs to take place in this spot of the human. The inward man, before they will be able to comprehend what they must do in the way of righteousness. There are two different that will come to the cross, two different types of people. One will come to the cross, both have faith. One will come to the cross and journey very little. The other one will come to the cross in faith and come to the place where Christ dwells in their hearts. Both have faith, only one progresses. What happens? Well, Jesus tells a parable about a sower. He says, a sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell along the path. The birds of the air came and quickly devoured these seeds. This is likened to when the word is preached, Satan quickly comes and steals away what was sown so that it proves to be unfruitful. These people never come to the cross. These people never are pulled or prodded in their inner being. Then, he says, some seed fell along the rocks. And there was no depth of soil. They immediately sprang up with joy. But because there was no depth, when trials and troubles and persecutions came on account of the word, they withered away and proved to be unfruitful. 
Then he says there was another seed that was sown among thorns. And it grew up. And it tarried for a while. But eventually, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choked it out. And it proved to be unfruitful. Now up to this point, we've discussed one of those two Christians, or one of those two professors, to come to Christ, right? They come to faith. One of them is going to abide. The rest will never progress to Christ dwelling in their hearts. Finally, Jesus said there was another seed, and this is the true seed, the real seed, the abiding seed, in which the soil is tilled and fertile for the seed. And he says, when the word is sown in this heart, it produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. What's the difference? What took place in the heart when the word was sown? God will do a working. God calls people. He calls all people, really. Many are called, few are chosen. But he calls all people and commands all people, all places, to repent and believe the gospel. Some people hear the gospel and they quickly put it off. Others hear the gospel and they believe that they've received it, but one thing never took place from the start. They never truly resolved to give Christ all of their heart. They never truly resolved to lay down their life, to pick up their cross and follow Jesus, in which Jesus says, unless you do this, you cannot be my disciple. But finally, there is the good seed. They're the ones who say, Lord, this life and everything in it is not worth comparing to the glory that you offer, to the promise that you give in your word. And I, Lord, am willing to lay down every part of myself, every aspect of myself, all my time, all my talent, all my passions, all my desire. I am willing to lay it down, all of my sin, and to follow you wherever you go because I see that this is a mighty pearl. And we know the story, right? The pearl of great price. What did the man do when he found it? He went, he sold all that he had for that pearl. It is when this takes place in the mind and the heart of an individual that the heart is then fit for the king to dwell in. Aside from this, there is no dwelling place for the king. Paul's fervent prayer would be that they wouldn't end with head knowledge. They wouldn't end with their theology. They wouldn't end with having their doctrine right and just having hope. But that Christ would dwell in their hearts, that they would be effective Christians, operating in love and bringing glory to the Father. He understands that it takes a life of complete submission to the working and the will of God in their life. Jesus is worthy of it all. A man once said, Jesus is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. It's a hard saying. But if you really think about it in your own life, you'll see it to be true. I heard a parable once. Someone told me this story. I don't remember where I heard it. It's very relevant to this passage. He tells a story. It goes something like this. I'll, I'll do my best to tell it accurately. It says, a man had a great house, a big and beautiful house built on a wonderful foundation of gems and excellent brick and mortar. This man regarded his house highly. And one day there was a knock at his front door, and he opened the door, and it was Jesus standing there. And Jesus says, may I come in? And the man says, sure, I'd love to have you come in. He says, your room will be upstairs, third door on the left. The next morning, the man hears a knock at the door. He opens it, and the devil is standing there. Before he can push him away, he pushed the door in, attacked the man, beat him severely. The man barely got him out of the door. He cried out when it was all over, Jesus, where were you? Why didn't you help me? He says, I'm sorry, you only gave me access to this room, and this is where I'm staying. So the man says, I'll tell you what. 
I really need you around next time. I'll, uh, I'll give you access to the great room and the kitchen. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you what, you can have access to the whole house except for my bedroom, my office, and my private quarters. Those are reserved for me. The next morning, the man hears a knock at the door. He gets out of bed. He answers the door. He's attacked even more severely. There is the enemy again, that devil. Beats him very, very severely. Barely gets him out of the door. He cries out again, Jesus, where were you? Why didn't you help me? Jesus says to him, I'll tell you what. Give me the keys to the house. Don't just reserve rooms for me. Hand the keys over and make it my house. And you dwell with me. And when the enemy comes back in the morning, I'll deal with him on your behalf. The next morning came. The man hears a knock at the door. Before he can get out of bed, Jesus answers the door. And when the enemy sees him, he says, I'm sorry, sir. I have the wrong home. This is the victory. And this is the life that a true Christian experiences when they have submitted everything to the cross of Christ. Truly, God is deserving of nothing less than all of our life. And accepting of nothing less than all of our life. How oftentimes it is that we hold back certain places in our heart from God. Even us who name the name of the Lord. Unbelievers who first come to the faith or are first being prodded by the spirit at work in the inner being are quick to admit that they held back much of their estate from the Lord. But, but what about us who've been in the faith for many years? Other things that we've held back from God? Other areas, secret places of our heart that we have not fully given over to the Messiah? Is there rooms in our house that Jesus does not have access to? Whether it's our time, our talents, our energies, certain sins. Christ wants the whole heart. The whole heart, church. Every single aspect of it. And truly, unless he has the whole heart, we will never be effective Christians. You know, the Bible says if any, anyone be in Christ Jesus, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, all has been made new. All. Oftentimes what it looks like when somebody does not give their entire heart or entire life to Jesus, yet professes him, it looks like somebody with nothing more than mere outward religion. And oftentimes we can deceive ourselves and deceive others into believing that everything is well and that we really belong to the Lord. And we, we go on convincing ourselves for our own conscience sake that everything is okay when it's not. How can we recognize whether or not Christ really dwells in our hearts and is really the Lord and not just the Savior that we prayed for in the salvation prayer many years ago, but the Lord of our life? that he demands to be, how can we be sure? Well, on the one hand, oftentimes when somebody makes a profession of faith without having the true substance, they'll find that over a period of time, they cannot get the victory over sins. There are sins that linger in the inner man that were never dwelt, dealt with, and they manifest themselves more strongly at certain seasons than others, but they've never been mortified. They've never been overcome by the power of the cleansing of Jesus Christ in the heart. There's been areas that have been held back, and because of that, maybe a year, or maybe it's, maybe it's months, maybe it's years later, that things begin to surface. Your affections are not completely for the Lord. If you live a life that is content with little devotion to Christ, little devotion in prayer, little devotion in the Word, if what excites you is the game on TV, your hobbies, your finances, 
and you find little affection in the things of God, you have to question whether or not Christ dwells in your heart. Now, there's three different kinds of people here today. There are some here today who do not have the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ does not dwell in your heart at all, and you know it. Then there are some here who have called themselves Christians for years. But if they were to examine themselves under the heavy weight of the passages of Scripture that Paul lays down in Ephesians and test themselves to it, they would find that their faith might not be as authentic as they initially thought. Then there are those here today that can examine their hearts, and their heart does not accuse them. They can genuinely say, I'm not perfect. I'll be the first to admit it. But I know I'm not who I was. I know where my affections lie. I know who died for me, who loves me, and I love him, and is he that I want to serve. But there are three different types of us here today. The question is, for those of you who do not know Christ, is it because you don't know what he's done for you? Does Christ not dwell in your heart because you don't know of the great riches of his love and grace and mercy towards you? But the scripture says, well, we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for the unrighteous. Right where we are, right what we look like now, Christ died doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, or what you've done. Christ died for you. Is it because you don't know his love? Is it because that you don't recognize that in the midst of your vile, putrid sin, in which we all once walked, Christ looks on you with love and compassion, ready to save you and pull you out of that and put a new heart in you and bless your life abundantly? Is it because you don't realize that Jesus Christ, who did not have to leave the heavenly estate, came down out of heaven, bore the wrath of man and of his Father on behalf of us sinful people who, as of the time, were not repentant? He shed his blood. He was stretched out on a tree. The Bible says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He was stretched on the tree, pierced and crushed, He even prayed the night before, or perhaps early in the morning of, the crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. That if it be possible, this cup would pass from him. We see in the book of Luke that it came to the point where he was pouring great drops of blood out of his face. He was sweating drops of blood. But God says, no, son, I am going to crush you. I am going to pierce you. I am going to let them mock you, though you do not deserve it. Though we didn't have to do it, I'm going to permit it on on their behalf because I love them. Could it be that you're here this morning and Christ doesn't dwell in your heart because you don't know his love? Do not trample on the grace of God. When you hear of his love, don't turn away from it. It's a fearful thing to set aside the love and the sacrifice of Christ. You'd be better off if you'd never heard the gospel than to know such an unsearchable love for you and to put it to the side as if it's worthless, as worthless as dirt. Then there's some of us here who are self-deceived. We've called ourselves Christians. We've professed the faith. Other people believe we're of the faith but we doubt it ourselves. We don't know. What does your life look like? Well, perhaps your life looks like you're having to constantly repent for the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over with an inability to get the victory over it, with a lack of power to overcome it or an unwillingness to turn from certain sins, or to make certain sins not as bad, or maybe they're just little. I'm saved by grace, so I'll endure with it. Or you know that your passions aren't for Christ, 
You know your heart isn't wrapped up in Christ? You know that if Christ were to tell you, be ready to give up everything to follow me, there'd be some things that come to mind right now that you're not so sure that you'd be willing to give up. Maybe you tell yourself, oh, I think I would, but you never do. If that's you, you have to call into question, for your own good and for the glory of God, whether or not that profession is authentic. Because I'm going to tell you that this is the state of many Christians. James chapter 2 speaks of it, about those who have faith without works, faith in a profession without the substance, without a changed life, without an inability to conquer sin, or without the desire to be truly and fully pleasing to God. Yet we convince ourselves we're saved for our own conscience' sake, so we don't have to deal with the prodding of the Lord day in and day out. We don't like the way that feels, and so we convince ourselves it's, it's all okay. I have religious affections. I have outward religion that other people can see. I serve in the church. I'm a generally decent person, and I believe the gospel. The thing is that the scripture calls us to obey the gospel. And this is what separates on that last day the sheep from the goats. Matthew 7 says, Not everybody who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of God, but he that doeth the will of my Father. It is he that will inherit the kingdom of God. Then there's those of you here who are confident. Yet this message is still for you, because we all can go deeper. Every one of us. For those of you who know that there's been a transformation who know you are all in for Christ, who know that the old has passed away and all has been made new, even in us who would say that can go deeper. My prayer for this message is that in all of our hearts, all of our hearts, we would examine ourselves, first and foremost, to see whether we're of the faith, and secondly, what can we do to bring glory to God with our faith? What can we lay down or lay aside that clings to us so quickly, so readily, in order to live the effective Christian life, in order to be lights in the world, that if only we were a voice to those around us, if only we lived that life, perhaps those around us and the world around us would be radically different. Is it possible that Western Christianity has wounded the church? I think it is. I think that's part of the problem is our Western Christianity. I hear faithful brothers and sisters, stories of faithful brothers and sisters in other third world countries serving Christ unto death, meeting in secret, because they understand it will cost them their life, forsaking family, as Jesus said we must be willing to do, to turn away from everything, including family, if necessary, for the gospel's sake. And these brothers and sisters do it. And they do it with joy. Be it with some pain, but with joy. Yet yeah, Western Christianity looks much different. It's part of our problem that we see on the streets because of Western religion, Western Christianity. Because there isn't a zeal and isn't a fervency in our lives to truly live what we see the gospel call us to. I was reading a pamphlet from a Puritan just the other day. And he made the comment that the prophets, the false prophets of old, the prophets of Baal even, had more fervency and zeal for their false God than people do in the modern time for the living God, even those who name his name. He drew the picture in the mind of this pagan religion in which people were willing to cut themselves open, bleed their own blood, scream over the prophet's voice, sacrifice their children, 
and worship day and night a pagan god. Though God doesn't call us to sacrifice our children, he does call us to sacrifice our lives. And in contrast to the pagan worshipers of old, I'm afraid that when we look at Christianity today, and mind you, a Puritan wrote this, so things have only gotten worse. Compared to Christianity today, our zeal, our fervency, our passion, isn't even as powerful as that of the pagan worshipers of old. As I wondered what happened. Why did this happen? How did this happen? I think it was a generational thing. I think it happened over time, right? It's like a seed. And weeds always tend to grow faster than the fruit in a garden. But it was time, and it was generational, and there became an acceptance and a tolerance for a lesser way of devotion toward the Lord, a lesser gospel, a lesser glory, a lesser passion, a lesser zeal, a lesser desire to evangelize the lost and to save those around us. And maybe, just maybe, Western Christianity is in part to blame for what we see going on today. I was driving down the road the other day, and I saw a billboard. And uh, the first thing I seen was seared to perfection. It was for American food. It was a cheeseburger, grilled food, and uh, it said seared to perfection. And I looked at the sign, and I didn't notice the food. The first thing that came to my mind was, is that where Satan has us? that where he has the church? Truly not the real church, but much of the professing church, the evangelical church, our western church, seared to perfection in a place where we have perhaps unintentionally come to a very lukewarm standing in our personal devotion, in our evangelism and our servitude and way of personal holiness and sanctification and the glorification of God, Paul's very prayer is that this would not happen to the Ephesian church. you got to remember who it is who's praying for them. The mind in which is lifting this prayer up before the sovereign God. The Apostle Paul himself who exemplified the very thing that I'm speaking to you right now. He laid down his life, counted it as garbage, the word used there is actually much more powerful than garbage. He counted it as nothing. So that the kingdom of God might be advanced. So that the glory of God and the grace of God might be made known. And it cost him his life. He eventually gave his neck to the sword because of his proclamation. I've heard it said before. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I'm sure some of you have heard that. Would there be? Ask yourselves that question deep in your hearts. To many of us, these words can be offensive, but they're not my words, and, and they're not just coming from my mind. This is the word of God, exemplified by those who have gone before us. And there are times and seasons where the Lord wants this to be reminded. And I just think of in the midst of everything, in our having to be separated. Perhaps that was for God to show the church what it is to be together. To see the injustice and the wickedness of human hearts to get man to think about their own. It's the season for this kind of preaching. Let us examine our own hearts. Let us test ourselves, as the scripture calls us to do, to see whether or not we are of the faith. And if we are, let us serve and love one another with everything within us and bring glory and honor to the God who's called us, who gave his only begotten Son, that if we would look to him and believe in him, we will be saved. 
Let us have a fresh passion and zeal and fervor for one another and for God because this is what he called us to, to love God with all and to love our neighbors ourselves. Imagine, church, for a minute, what it would look like if we submitted to this kind of teaching. What might Rock Valley Bible Church look like if we submitted to this teaching? What might our individual lives and relationships look like if we submitted to this kind of teaching instead of got offended at it? What might happen in all of our lives and the lives of those around us and in our community? Because this is true Christianity. This is what God called us to. This is pure and undefiled religion. When Christ has the entire heart, when Christ has the entire man, the entire being, the entire soul, your entire desires. Paul prayed it because he knew that everything hinged on this, not on doctrine, not on reformed theology or the doctrines of grace or being able to quote scripture better than brethren from other denominations or this or that or whatever it may be. He says, no, it's about a transformed heart that is all in for Christ. And this is what separates the sheep from the goats on that day. And so to make sure that Paul's labor and preaching wasn't in vain, he drives this point home in their heart, praying fervently before the Father on their behalf that they might come to understand this truth before he goes any further. And church, what does this call us to? Just imagine it. Well, the next thing to take note of is that the very point of Christ dwelling in our hearts so that we might have strength to comprehend with all the saints the vastness of God's love, of Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, and that we might be rooted and grounded in love. Love is the foundation of the Christian religion. A person who has not truly died to all his own desires and his own ways cannot truly love God with all his heart and love his neighbor as himself because pride, self-righteousness, and self-servitude will always get in the way from the pure and undefiled religion. In order to love and comprehend the love of God, there has to be a completely new man with a completely new heart in which Christ dwells in. This is also part of Paul's fervent prayer. I find it interesting in John chapter 15. When we read John chapter 15, it talks about abiding in Christ. And apart from me, you could do nothing. But then towards the end of that chapter... He makes a statement, no greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, and I have called you friends. When we read that passage, we see very plainly that Jesus is saying, you're my friends, and I'm showing you that there's no greater love than what I'm about to do for you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. But if we really examine that passage, it says so much more because he calls us friends. And so if Jesus says there's no greater love than to lay your life down for your friends, and he lays his life down for his friends, does that not make Jesus our friend? And then does that not beckon us to lay down our life for Jesus and for others? I tell you, this is what God commanded us. This is what Christ commanded us, to love God and to love your neighbor. And we do that through death. Death to the self. That's when we show we love God. And that's when we have the capacity to love our neighbor. No greater love. How many of you know that love is an action, not a word? We know that to be true because John 3.16 says, For God so loved that he gave. There was an action. God gave his son. It's the ultimate form of love. It's incomprehensible. I've heard people say, you know, I, I love my wife, but then they go and they abuse her, cheat on her, lie to her, doubt her. 
but they believe that because they have some type of inward affection, and they're able to sometimes muster up some type of outward affection, that they actually love. But love is not a word. It's an action. Love is always followed by an action. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what love is and what love isn't. Love is patient and kind. It believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, it never ends. On the contrary, it's not irritable, resentful, insisting on its own way. It's not prideful. Love is the foundation of the Christian religion. Love takes place when Christ dwells in the heart of a man. And love is what transforms societies, homes, churches. Love. Without love, according to 1 John, we do not prove to be Christ's disciples. We do not prove to belong to God. You see now how it all goes together? The working in the inner man through the Spirit of God, which for some leads to Christ dwelling in the hearts, which leads to an individual maturing and being rooted and grounded in love. And when this rooting and grounding in love has matured, it leads to a comprehension of the love of God. And when there's a comprehension for the love of God, there is a filling according to this passage, with all the fullness of God. There's a filling with God's desires, aspirations, will, love, and faculty to serve and love those around us. Paul says it is through this heart change and through this love that we are filled with all the fullness of God. Yet how often we make make excuses so as to not operate in this love. Again, this is the true separator between the authentic and the inauthentic. Some might even be able to muster up enough outward religion and affection and morality to be very convincing. But one thing is lacking, and the Bible says if this thing is lacking, you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You can even die as a martyr, and it's pointless because you've gained nothing. He says it's love. This is what separates a Christian who has the possession of faith from a person who has only the profession of faith. And as we make excuses to live in our sins and as we make excuses so as to not draw near to God, Paul reminds us that not only is it possible to have this happen, when oftentimes we convince ourselves, well, we just can't change or this just can't happen. Not only is it possible through a transformed heart, but Paul says that even more can be done, that God is able to do even more. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. The working of God in your life, if you are willing to submit everything to God, is limitless. The places where God will take you for his glory and for your own good are limitless when the life is surrendered completely to Christ. The blessings that flow from having peace with God through faith are immeasurable. The joy that one can have this side of heaven who rejoices in the flame of fire even when their flesh is being burned as a martyr can be yours. When full submission to Christ takes place. Now, church family, I don't know where everybody stands individually, but it's between you and God. But my prayer is that we would all examine our hearts to press in, to see where we truly stand, to be real with ourselves, to look, to not look in a tainted mirror, but a real mirror we can see clearly and examine ourselves. For God's glory and for our own good. My prayer is that we would be such a mighty church for God. In servitude, in love, in self-abandonment, in evangelism. That we would set ablaze everywhere around us and everyone around us. Imagine a, a place of being where 
You're so sold out for Christ, so in for God, that even the other churches in your area look at you as peculiar. Not because you do peculiar things or babble or do, do weird things to draw attention, but because there's something about your love, there's something about your dedication, there's something about your self-abandonment and your fervency and your zeal in evangelism that is radical. Imagine you in that place for a moment. You sitting there right now, imagine you in that place. Imagine your life with that. What is holding you back? Let Christ dwell in your hearts richly. Let Christ dwell in your hearts completely. Because that's when God has brought the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And I say amen to that. Let us submit our lives fully to the Lord, to resolve to be fully pleasing to him, fully committed to him, never taking for granted any of the blessings he gives, and doing the best that we can to serve him with all of our lives and influence the world around us in love, in spirit, and in truth, so that God may continually, perpetually, eternally, be brought glory. Let us pray. Father, we are all here before you in your hands. You're sovereign over every one of our lives. Have your will done, Father. What else can we say? Here we are. We pray for your strength and your might and your spirit put a resolve in us to be all in for Christ, not to deceive ourselves any longer, to be shaken out of our cozy Christianity, to have a change of heart and a change of mind, and when we read the scriptures, to see this truth interwoven all throughout, this idea of being completely new, completely in, completely changed. Help us to walk in this to live in this. Show us, every one of us individually, how this message applies to our hearts right now. Those who are unregenerate, those who think they are regenerate, and those who are regenerate, work in all of our lives because this applies to all of us. Work in us, Lord, for your glory and for our own good. In Jesus' name, amen.